I'm Rob Goldstone, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers to get to know the person behind the persona. Today, my guest is Dr. Lawrence Barcelo. Lawrence Barcelo is the Samuel Candler Dobbs Professor of Psychology at Emory University. After receiving his PhD in psychology from Stanford University, he held faculty appointments at Emory University, Georgia Institute of Technology, and the University of Chicago, eventually returning to Emory in 1997. Professor Barslow's research addresses the nature of human cognition and its roles in perception, memory, language, and thought. Specific topics of current interest for Larry Barcelo include the roles of cognition and emotion, stress, abstract thought, self, appetitive behavior, and contemplative practices. He has received numerous honors over the years, including being chair of the Cognitive Science Society, a Guggenheim Fellow, an honorary fellowship status in the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American Psychological Association, the Association for Psychological Science, the Cognitive Science Society, the Mind Life Institute, and the Society for Experimental Psychologists. Larry, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. So I'm hoping that you can get us started just by telling us a little bit about your training as a psychologist. Who were influencing you? What were the theories that really got you going? Well, I was incredibly lucky to by chance end up at the University of California, San Diego, as an undergraduate in the mid-70s when there was an amazing group of faculty in psychology there who were central to the development of the cognitive science uh, tradition that's really started to take off during that period. And basically, you know, as, as you know, the, the cognitive revolution occurred in the 1950s, which was a very interdisciplinary um, kind of um, movement away from behaviorism that occurred in psychology, uh, computer science, neuroscience, linguistics, anthropology. And um, there was this kind of, although the kind of discussion and, and thinking about cognition had been banned for 50 years, it began to flourish again um, in the 60s. And in the 70s, UCSD was one of the hotbeds of this kind of interdisciplinary study of cognition. And, you know, I decided I was going to be a psych major. I wanted to become a clinical psychologist. And, but UCSD had this incredibly hardcore experimental psychology major. And so I took, you know, I, I started taking the courses in, in this major taught by this amazing group of uh, psychology faculty and immediately kind of realized that I didn't want to do clinical work. Um, but wanted to do basic science. And then, you know, I just happened to kind of be able to take courses from people like Dave Rummelhart, Don Norman, and I ended up in George Mandler's lab, a really eminent memory psychologist. And I started kind of learning how to do experiments, kind of develop kind of methods for doing rigorous investigation of how the mind works. And this is what I really fell in love with was this, and I didn't realize it was even possible that it was scientifically possible to study, to figure out how the mind works in a rigorous manner. So I, in, in the Mandler lab, I, I uh, had a great opportunity to learn those methods. But then kind of all around in, in other parts of the department and other parts of the university, all this cognitive science was taking place. And so I, I took courses from Jay McClelland 
on cognition, and I learned about Eleanor Roche's work on categorization, and I, and I just decided that I wanted to study categorization, human conceptual processing, which is an important system uh, in the cognitive, important part of the cognitive system. Um, and so I just, um, I, I was there for two years. I ended up, I, I was, I just felt so lucky because I felt like I, I got two years of graduate training as an undergraduate. I had really great lab experience. I had great coursework. I was able to take some really fine graduate courses and get to know a lot of faculty and grad students. Um, so I, I, I felt I was really lucky to be so well prepared when I went to grad school. I went to grad school at Stanford, which was another great place for cognitive science. And, you know, I just kept, you know, being at the right place at the right time and just and being so fortunate to soak up um, great work, kind of, you know, just a great be, being around great researchers and seeing how they operate, seeing how they think learning from them. And um, so that's uh, that's basically how I got my start. Great. So you mentioned cognitive science in there. What to your, is the difference between cognitive science and psychology? Cognitive psychology, I would say, focuses on understanding how the brain produces cognitive activity through various kinds of representations and processes, processes associated with um, perception, attention, um, executive processing, long-term memory, knowledge, language, thought, social cognition, emotion, and so forth. Cognitive science essentially is interested in all of those same topics, but from an interdisciplinary perspective. Um, so cognition is not just studied using psychological methods. It's studied using computer science tools, building computational models that come out of computer science, kind of using longstanding uh, kind of analytic tools from philosophy to kind of, kind of examine and, and kind of work through the soundness of various constructs that are being applied to how the brain works. Um, linguistics brings in kind of expertise about language, anthropology, about culture, and about all sorts of physical aspects associated with cognition. Um, and neuroscience, of course, about how the brain works. And basically, you know, I think what a lot of people in the cognitive science community believe is that you can't st understand cognition just using one methodology. It's such a complicated, multifaceted phenomenon. You need multiple levels of analysis and multiple levels of theoretical explanation to really understand how it works. And this is the real kind of insight of cognitive science and lies at the heart of how it works. And I must say that IU is just one of the best places in the world for cognitive science, that IU has this amazing cognitive science program. A great set of departments has really invested heavily in this tradition and is just it's just such an amazing place to visit and come hear about what everyone's doing and uh, it's oh, very you inspiring. don't have to say that. <laughs> thanks for saying no, that. No, no, it is truly inspiring to be here. So um, right. I completely agree with you on the value of triangulating on something as difficult as minds by various methodologies from neuroscience to computer science to, to psychology. So um I noticed on Google that your paper that a appeared in Behavioral and Brain Sciences, uh, Perceptual Symbol Systems, has now been cited over 4,000 times. Um, so clearly, you've struck a nerve. I was hoping that you'd be able to give us a bit of a capsule summary for what was the main contention of that 
paper and how you saw it as fitting in with uh, the zeitgeist of understanding about cognition? Yeah, that's a great question. So in cognitive sciences, we've been talking about it. It, it grew out of a number of different significant influences in the 1950s, including computer science, applied mathematics information theory, and uh, various kinds of logical and statistical um, formalisms. And and basically, one of the, the big inspirations for the cognitive revolution was to start thinking about the mind as an information processing device. And because computers were just kind of had just been invented and, and everybody was extremely enthusiastic about them and all these new representation languages had been developed in statistics and computer science and logic, the whole field became captivated by the possibility that the way the mind works is like a computer. And it was an incredibly powerful metaphor that transformed, you know, it, it, this revolution didn't just take place in, cog, in, in psychology. It took place in all these disciplines we've been talking about. It kind of, they all became cognitive in various ways. But it was this, these early, this, these first 20 years of, of the cognitive revolution were very much invested in this idea that the brain is a computational device that's a lot like a computer. And a, a central part of this was that the way that knowledge is represented in the brain. And, and what cognitive scientists, cognitive scientists came to understand fairly early on is, is that what makes people smart is not so much our processing abilities, it's our knowledge. And that if you want to make a machine smart, you, it needs knowledge. It's not kind of the power of its ability to crunch information, even though that's certainly important, but it's the knowledge you have. And so there's tremendous interest in knowledge. And the key assumption about this knowledge was it was represented sort of like information is represented in a computer, like by a, a, a data structure or a program or a logical expression or something like that. And, and this way of thinking dominated the field for decades. And interestingly, it was never really tested vigorously. It was something that was assumed because everybody assumed that the brain works like a computer. This metaphor was just generating huge amounts of new findings, new insights into how people work. And so nobody questions its assumptions. And then slowly things started to kind of fall apart a little bit. And I would say the first really big challenge came from connectionism and neural nets, arguing that, wow, you know, these representations that are so central to what make people smart are not really like these formal kinds of ex symbolic expressions that we have like in a programming language or like in a logic. or It's, it's something sloppier, like a, some kind of statistical representation. And so this was kind of the first attack on this kind of on the on the major assumptions of this revolution the next kind of major thing to come along were challenges from neuroscience which were kind of consistent with this idea of the importance of statistical information and, and neural nets, um, kind of arguing, well, is, are these kind of conceptions of cognition that came out of the cognitive revolution are they realistic for how the brain works and people started questioning that and then sort of I think the third major attack on this tradition is associated with the paper that you mentioned. Um, and, it, and it actually started a good 20 years before um, I wrote that paper. Probably one of the seminal papers was John Searle's uh, paper on the Chinese room problem and the grounding problem. And the problem that he pointed out was that you've got these symbolic expressions in the cognitive system. How do they relate to what you're seeing? How do they relate to the world? How do they relate to your action? And this was not something that the science had established, how you link cognition to perception and action into the world. And this was a huge problem. And, and there, 
from from the time you wrote that paper until about 2000, all sorts of people were kind of picking away at this issue and they realized it was a problem and were making suggestions having to do with a wide variety of things like imagery, uh, metaphor, uh, situatedness, um, kind of trying to figure out how you link cognition to the world and to experience. And this paper that I wrote in 1999 basically argued that the knowledge in the cognitive system is not symbolically represented in something like a logic or a programming language, that knowledge is instead captured and expressed in what I referred to as simulations of experience. So like, for example, um, if you um, eat an apple, um, you, um, you see what it looks like, you, f- you, you know what it feels like in your hand, you know what it feels like to bite into, you know what the actions are like, you know how it tastes, you know how it smells, you know how it makes you feel. There are parts of your brain that produce all those experiences, that multimodal experience of an apple. And the idea that basically I proposed in this paper, which is actually an idea that's been around for thousands of years, it's one of the oldest ways of thinking about cognition that's been around for several hundred years B.C., And basically, the cognitive revolution, when it came up with these more symbolic accounts, was displacing an idea that had been around for 2,000 years. And and all that this paper simply did was to kind of reinstate this idea to some extent in a more modern language. But the idea in this theory is that when your brain experiences an apple, as I just described, there are association areas that capture the experience and integrate that experience with many other apple experiences so that you develop a network in the brain. Um, that has captured what it's like to eat an apple, and it gets associated with the word for an apple because with humans we have words for our categories. And then the idea from this perspective is that when you need to access knowledge about what an apple is, you don't kind of generate a symbolic structure, um, which would have been the case in these traditional theories. What you do instead is you run your brain (laughs) as if it were eating or experiencing an apple. Even though there might not be one present, if you say the word apple to me and you ask me what it is, how I know what it is, is is my brain is running as an, F, an apple were present. It's simulating an apple. And this was the basic idea that um, I presented in this paper. And there were two things that I tried to do with this, several things I tried to do with this idea. One was to show that this basic simulation mechanism could implement a wide variety of the symbolic functions that these traditional theories could implement that were believed to be very important for cognition, things like type token binding, inference, conceptual combination, recursion. This paper illustrated how using simulation mechanisms you could implement all this functionality. And then the other thing that I really tried to do in this paper was to go through all the basic cognitive processes from things like high-level perception to attention to working memory to long-term memory, language, reasoning, and show how simulation could support all of those activities. When this paper came out, a lot of people thought it was the craziest thing that they'd ever heard. But I think, and people thought that for a while until various other people like Alex Martin and Rolf Swan started generating empirical results that supported this theory. And when those empirical results started coming out, people really started, you know, questioning the traditional view and thinking that there might be something to this alternative view. And, And since then, as you know, there's been just a tremendous amount of research and accumulating findings supporting the idea that the the brain, to some extent, is a simulation machine. It, it's not all that it does. It's not the only principle of computation it uses, but it's an important um, form by which we do all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so like if you see you know, a hammer and you want to know how to use it, your brain simulates the use of the hammer to understand what it does. Or if you see an apple, for example, your brain simulates what it would taste like so that you know how it's going to taste. 
So I I'm guess I'm wondering if our understanding of this apple is grounded in our perceptual experiences and the things that we do with it. What about people who have fundamentally different perceptual experiences, people who are deaf or blind, or people like Helen Keller who are both deaf and blind, do they have the same concepts as we do, or how can we communicate with them? It would certainly follow from this position that there should be differences. And to, I think, a large extent, this question hasn't really been addressed nearly to the extent that it needs to be. So I don't really think we have the data to answer the question. In a number of cases, I think what, what is often found is that people with deficits don't show huge deficits in their cognition related to these categories. And I think one hypothesis that, or, or kind of one explanation for why they don't show huge def deficits is most of the things we experience have redundant kind of converging sources of information associated with them. So if you lose one modality and one source of information, it's not like you've lost all the information you need to kind of interact effectively. So for example, people who've lost their visual system, their, their visual processing still have great visual imagery often because they have spatial systems that can, uh, that can carry the load in, in kind of doing the things that visual imagery often does. So I think um, th that's one explanation. And, and, and again, I think there are other mechanisms besides simulation that people um, can use especially linguistic mechanisms that um, can carry a lot of the load when um, there's a lot of statistical information stored in language that reflects what's in experience. So if you if you have access to language, you can get you can get access to a lot of the information you might need. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense to me. How far do you want to take your account? So you're arguing for the the grounded nature of our concepts and our experiences and simulations of previous sensory experiences. What about uh, abstract concepts like uh, truth or justice or algebra, metaphysics. Do you want to say that they're all grounded like this? Yeah. I mean, so I mean, I think one key question that's still unanswered and is extremely controversial at the moment is whether there are, there are some kind of symbolic structures in the cognitive system like the ones that, the that were, came came about in the cognitive revolution. And one possibility is, is that abstract knowledge is represented with those kinds of structures. And there are a lot of people out there who believe that right now. And I think that's a possibility. I must say, I'm skeptical. I, I mean, I've spent a lot of time for the last 10 years learning about the brain. And most of my work these days um, uses neuroimaging. Um, and the more that I learn about the brain, I just find it increasingly implausible to think that there is some kind of amodal symbolic representation language in there. Um, now, I'm, I'm very empirically oriented, and if, if, if evidence you know, is produced that the brain uses these kinds of representations, I have no problem embracing that. I'm not at all defensive about simulation having to explain everything. But I guess I, you know, um, so, so I mean, given what I just said, I, I do spend a fair amount of time trying to understand how simulation mechanisms might um, produce abstract concepts. And I've, you know, done a, a modest amount of work on this topic, trying to understand what abstract concepts are and to understand how um, simulation and other mechanisms might underlie them. Kind of, it, we're kind of in the middle of this at the moment, so I don't think we have any clear answers. But what I think an abstract concept is, is that we spend a lot of time looking at abstract concepts. And I often just do this intuitively. I'm trying to get a sense of 
what they're about and how they might work. And, and I should point out that there's just a huge variety of them. They are, it's, I mean, it's an amazing set of concepts. If you just look in, in like word norms at concrete and abstract concepts, the, the variety of abstract concepts is tremendous. If you look in it, it, human language use, abstract concepts are often used more than concrete words. It's something we do a lot of. And so it's something that's really important for us to understand. But another dimension to my approach is that I take a very situated approach to things. Um, this is another major theme of kind of the modern grounded movement besides simulation being important. The idea that our bodies and our activity and our brains are all embedded in physical environments and in social environments. And that, you know, it's our coupling with these environments that you know, essentially produce cognition. We, we wouldn't have cognition if you, you know, if you go into a deprivation chamber, you, your cognition falls apart. You need to be coupled with an environment to have, you know, good cognition. And so we need to understand how this coupling works. And so, and I think the situated perspective, which got its start, it goes way back in lots of traditions, but most, and most recently, it's really had a major presence in robotics. But the idea is that um, you're constantly you ha your brain is set up to process the situation that you're in, and so there are parts of the brain that process the setting you're in, the objects that are present, the other people that are present, the uh, the actions and events that are taking place, all sorts of mental states that you have, and for and basically my specialty is the conceptual system. The conceptual system is kind of identifying all these parts of situations that are around you. So the fact that we're in a room, I'm across from Rob. And we're talking, you know, I, uh, my brain is essentially kind of registering the perception, perceptual experiences of all these components of the situation and conceptualizing what they are. And what I think an abstract concept is, is the integration of all this stuff. It's a relational structure. They tend to be relational structures that hold situations together. And they, they underlie things like verbs and all sorts of abstract relational concepts. And... I think one of the, the big challenges for the grounded approach is to come up with well-motivated accounts with respect to the brain and cognition that explain how this relational structure gets established. And I think it's these concepts that make us smart. It's our ability to think about situations in an integrated manner that makes us so sophisticated. And, and when you look at this set of abstract concepts, um, you can just see how amazing we are and how prolific we are in kind of thinking about what's going on in situations at a large level. And I should point out that this is not just a problem for the grounded approach. This is a problem for any approach, including the, the classic symbolic approach. Nobody has explained how these concepts work. And so it's, you know, but for the grounded approach, how, how you explain what these relations are and how they are represented in the brain is a huge challenge and something I'm extremely interested in. I tend to think one hypothesis I have, and this is probably pretty flaky, and I probably shouldn't be saying this in public, but I have no restraint, is that is I think it comes out of intentional action to a large extent, that you see an object in the world and you have some reaction to it. You have an affective reaction, like an emotional reaction. You see it as offering reward. It's relevant to, your, to yourself in some way. And, and you have a whole system that, that establishes this kind of – this is part of these, these re, this relational structure is the relation of an, a stimulus or an event to you. 
And then you have some kind of feeling or, you know, of, of how of, that, that I think is often associated with emotion, anticipated reward that runs in your body. And kind of the object then acquires some relation to that bodily state and the significance of the object for yourself. And then you think about how you're going to act on the object. And you start generating goals and you're coming up, you generate action sequences. You think about possible outcomes. You might actually perform the actions. And I think it's the relations between all these components of um, the, this kind of basic situation where you see something, react to it, and respond. I think a lot of the, the structure that underlies abstract concepts begins in, in that kind of interaction. And there may be certain kinds of social, basic social communicative, communicative interactions and other kinds of interactions with other people that we're built to process. We just come in ready to understand these relations. And that kind of our vocabulary of abstract concepts has, 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 has basically grown out of this relational structure. I know of no evidence for that account, but I, I mean, that's something that I would really like to uh, explore Great. potentially at some point. Yeah. I'm Rob Goldstone, and I'm, for, I'm with my guest, uh, Larry Barslow. He's a professor of psychology at Emory University and has engaged in fundamental research on human cognition and its roles in perception, memory, language, and thought. And you have been uh, quite adventurous in your lifetime as a psychologist. You were trained as a traditional empirical, experimental, cognitive psychologist. Um, so it was quite surprising for me to see a number of years ago that you were beginning to apply these standard tools to understanding mindfulness, um, which is a, a very interesting topic, and using your same tools to understanding contemplative behavior, meditation, and the influences that meditation has on thought. I was hoping that you could share with us some of your uh, experimental discoveries regarding what is the, the role of meditation, what is the role of mindfulness in self-regulation. I decided when I was a teenager growing up in the 60s that I was a Buddhist, and so I've always been interested in Buddhism and, and meditation and so forth. And um, at one point, I started becoming interested in, in the roles of simulation in psychopathology and psychotherapy. And I got pulled into a project that some other people were running at Emory, uh, an imaging pro uh, project on meditation. And so I got, uh, and I really wasn't doing much with the Buddhist community or the meditation community for most of my life since I was a teenager. But once I started working on this project with this group and started meeting all the locals uh, who at Emory um, were, were into this perspective, I started um, getting back into it myself. And there's at the core of Buddhism is something called the Four Noble Truths. Um, and, and the first noble truth is that life is suffering. And the second is that it's – and this is a gloss, kind of a modern cognitive gloss on it. it, it it's basically your cognitive habits that make you so miserable. And that, in that, in kind of in modern language, you experience stress because of your mental habits. And so, I started seeing that kind of this work that I was doing on simulation, kind of offered a way to think about how thoughts make people miserable. That essentially, what you're doing when you're stressing out about something, is that you're simulating some kind of event, and that you're simulating it in a way that makes you unhappy. And Buddhism is is amazing and kind of having a whole vocabulary and set of tools for thinking about what these simulations are doing and why they, they make um, life difficult for people. And, but I also thought that modern cognitive science had a lot to contribute be above and beyond what, what Buddhism 
um, had discovered to kind of understand how the brain and the cognitive system um, produce um, stressful events. So one thing that I've been very that kind of got me back into this community was I'm um, just not so much trying to understand mindfulness, but trying to understand the thing that mindfulness is an antidote to and trying to understand stress. So I've been increasingly um, working on emotion and stress, just trying to understand the mechanisms that that uh, make life, life difficult. On the other side, I'm very interested in um, various techniques that can counteract these problematic thoughts and these and the qualities of simulation that um, that uh, that can create stress. And so I've done not only research related to trying to understand the cognition of stress, but kind of research related to understanding mechanisms associated with mindfulness and other Buddhist practices that can that Buddhists have developed to kind of take the kind of the, the stress out of these thoughts. Um, and I'd say perhaps what's most unique about the approach that I take, there's a, a, a huge community of, of great researchers looking at mindfulness and other kinds of practices. By and large, much of that work focuses on mindfulness as an intervention and on its clinical effects, which is really important and a great thing to do. My orientation primarily focuses on trying to under the, understand the mechanisms by which these practices work and, and try to understand kind of these mechanisms with respect to simulations. What is it about the simulations that make thoughts difficult? And then how do these mindfulness practices take those qualities on and disable them? That sounds fascinating. So how do you take something so deep and spiritual as mindfulness and turn it into an experiment? How can you give people mindfulness training in, in, a, in a short experimental situation? So one line of work that um, I've done uh, with my collaborator, Esther Papias, um, basically teaches people a strategy uh, that Esther developed called uh, mindful attention, which we can teach to, my, to, to non-meditators in 12 minutes, which can produce um, some relatively quick benefits of mindfulness practice. And what this suggests to us is that, is that Meditation practices and things like mindfulness are built on basic cognitive abilities that everybody has so that very quickly you can recruit these abilities and start kind of utilizing them in the ways that these practices uh, were designed to do. So I'll, I'll give you an example of some, some recent work that we've done that is largely Esther's work. So Esther's an eating researcher, and she's interested in trying to understand why people eat when they shouldn't. When you see an attractive food, you know, you even if you're not hungry, you, it generates cognitive activity that makes you want to consume it so that you end up consuming something you don't really want to eat. And so this cognitive activity is the kind of thing that Buddhism is very interested in. They're very interested in desire and craving and attachment. And they would view what's happening when you see an attractive food as having kind of, you know, craving and attachment. And it's the same kind of – it's this kind of suffering, this problematic thought that makes people unhappy that I was talking about a moment ago. And kind of what – one thing that mindfulness is designed to do is to take these thoughts and disable them. And kind of the basic move that you're taught if you, if you take basic meditation training 
is to like when you see an attractive food and you have this, you run this simulation of consuming the food that makes it seem like such a rewarding experience is you just kind of change your perspective on it. And rather than feeling immersed in kind of this eating experience, you kind of just see your mind producing this mental state and you see it as a mental state that's happening in the moment and that is likely to dissipate in a second. And this is your switching perspective from kind of launching yourself into this eating experience, time traveling and changing your perspective so that you're just in the moment having this mental state. And that's just a basic move you can make um, to disable difficult thoughts. And so what Esther did was to teach non-meditators how to do this in 12 minutes. And basically what the fact that you can do it in 12 minutes shows how, that we already have this ability. But what she did was to show people food pictures, attractive food pictures, and tell them they were going to have these, these thoughts about wanting to consume them, how tasty they would be, and then just to see them as thoughts and to watch them dissipate. And they did this for 12 minutes. And then she's done a wide variety of experiments looking at both um, kind of a, approach impulses towards food, food choices, actual eating in the world, and has shown that with very brief training, you can reduce kind of the craving that results from seeing an attractive food so that you actually want it less and you eat less of it. So it's quite simple and tractable in a way to actually do experiments on this, and they tie beautifully into classic cognitive theory. Um, because in this sense, we're just kind of tapping into cognitive processes that already exist, but are being used in a slightly different way. Really interesting. So it seems like some of the training that the subjects in this experiment would be engaged in would be training which involves having them see their own thoughts come before them, and then they see them come, and they see them go without being attached to them. But are there situations where one wants to be attached to one's thoughts? How, does one decrease one's pleasure in eating if one has this detached attitude towards one's own thoughts? Um, that's a complicated question and, 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 yeah, a great point. And it often comes up in context with, with these kinds of practices. Often, I think, for most people who practice these kinds of skills, it's viewed as kind of a skill that you have in a toolkit. You know, it's something you can use when you need it, um, when it's appropriate. But there are other occasions where you really kind of wa do want to get immersed in your thoughts, like um, where it's really important to, you know, to really become, say, emotionally involved with somebody or to become passionate about your work. And, you know, you, you really then do want to become engaged in those activities. And, you know, so I think what a lot of people talk about who are interested in these practices is what's really important is flexibility, knowing what the right thing to do at the right time is. But you know, I think a lot of us spend a lot of time getting really stressed out about stuff. And when we're doing this, it's because we have these thoughts that we're time traveling in and we're really immersing ourselves. And that's, a, you know, sometimes you really have to do that. You have to figure out how to deal with the situation. And then you do want to immerse in those thoughts. But if you're ruminating about something that, you know, you've thought about already too much or that's not really necessary to think about or you want to change how you think about it, if you can kind of step back and see what you're doing and kind of disable your cognitive activity, this can be a very useful skill. Right. Great. Um, so I know that you've also retooled yourself from your traditional experimental psychology roots into uh, being a cognitive neuroscientist now and actually opening up the, the black box of the, the mind to see the brain which is causing these mental activities. So is there 
evidence from cognitive neuroscience and brain imaging that bears on this question of what is mindfulness training doing? Do people who meditate have different brains? Yeah, I mean... Basically, there's a lot of research that tries to identify the neural mechanisms associated with various meditation practices. And generally, it kind of follows the same theme that I mentioned a moment ago, which is that it, meditation draws on basic processes that we all have. All have basic attentional processes. The ability to focus attention is very important. And then the ability to kind of shift um, attention uh, or to shift perspective on your thoughts is also um, is also very important. And so basically what you see when you um, image people's brains is you see networks um, involved, especially with um, attentional regulation, perceptual uh, shift perspective. Um, you see various kinds of affective activity and affective areas sometimes decrease. You see areas associated with mentalizing and mind-wandering decrease in, in experts. And typically, you, kind of a lot of these changes become stronger the more hours someone has practiced. Some studies have re reported structural changes in gray and white matter density in the brain in various places that are associated with the parts of the brain that are relevant to performing these practices. Kind of the beginning of a science, a neuroscience of understanding these, these, these mechanisms has begun. We still have a tremendous amount to learn. So if some of our listeners wanted to try out some basic elementary practices based upon your research for helping them control whatever they wanted to control, whatever they were addicted to be gambling or or sex or eating things that they really don't want to be eating. What would you recommend that they do? Are there some simple ways of entering this world? First of all, I'm not a clinician, so I'm, you know, I, I'm uh, not really qualified to give kind of professional advice um, about some of these things, but I can offer some informal suggestions. I would say, first of all, if someone is experiencing, you know, extreme forms of distress or, you know, kind of behavioral problems of some sort, that the best thing to do is to work with a psychotherapist. Psychotherapists increasingly are utilizing mindfulness as a basic tool um, with their clients. Um, it is, it's, it's, it's becoming widely recognized as very powerful. And, um, is, and so if, if, you, if one were interested in kind of using these kinds of practices for something in their life, I think it would be relatively easy to find a therapist who has been trained to use um, these methods and with whom you could work. If you're not so much experiencing um, significant difficulties, but you, you're just interested in these in these practices, or you know you you just want to reduce stress, um, perhaps the kind of most common thing that is being that people are doing in the Western world is something called mindfulness-based stress re reduction, um, MBSR. You can go on just Google it, and you'll find a uh, a site that you put in your zip code and will tell you the teachers near you. This was um, a kind of a training developed by John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center. It's a, it's a secular, non-religious, non-Buddhist um, set of practices um, de designed for medical purposes um, that uh, has been assessed with a lot of research suggesting that it is highly effective for all sorts of things. And you can take an eight-week course, and, and uh, this is one way to become introduced. If one is um, 
even more serious about developing these practices. There are, in many major cities and even small cities, there are meditation centers. There are some really fantastic large centers um, uh, around the U.S. where you can go for a retreat and basic um, training uh, year-round. Uh, Places like Upaya in Santa Fe, the Insight Institute um, in Massachusetts and Spirit Rock in California are all all retreat centers with great teachers and great courses. Right, right. And there's tons of great books and DVDs and CDs. And And I know that you're involved with this Mind and Life Institute. So this is an interesting um, collaborative venture among people who are looking to change the world and do do research on the nature of mind. Can you tell me uh, what your involvement is with them? Sure. The Mind and Life Institute was founded by the Dalai Lama, I believe, in the 70s or the 80s. And it, it, his goal was to bring together scientists and people from a wide variety of other academic and clinical and kind of contemplative communities to kind of share ideas and work together. And the Mind and Life Institute is basically an organization that sponsors a wide variety of events um, having to do with bringing scientists and contemplatives together. Um, They have a summer research institute, um, which is oriented towards bringing young scholars who are interested in working um, on contemplative practices, but from the perspective, say, of cognitive science or neuroscience uh, or the humanities. And they offer, there's going to be a major conference in Boston later this month. Um, Probably 1,500 people will be there, tons of great speakers and sessions. Um, But it's an organization that is really kind of, um, whose goal is to um, bring these different communities together and to kind of foster work and to kind of... um, instigate interactions and to to, to kind of move things forward. And um, I've become involved with them because I have been working in this area. I'm on one of their advisory committees. Um, I've helped them program some of um, of their events. So, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm, and I'm just a member of that community and I participate in their events in various ways. Okay. So, as a psychologist, what do you think the prospects are for developing uh, a general ability to approach your life in a mindful way. How much do we have to relearn mindfulness for every domain of our life? Eating mindfulness, um, being mindful of our social relations with others, being mindful of our our long-distance plans. Can we really become generally mindful? (laughs) Or is it something that we have to do again for each new venture? I think a lot of people in the contemplative community, a lot of Buddhists kind of just view that whole enterprise as just working on yourself. And there's, you know, so much work to do in so little time. And um, there's so many, you know, things one can uh, try to um, kind of improve in one, the way one thinks and the way one acts. And, you know, it's just a constant process. And there are, you know, and there are a lot of tools out there. I mean, you know, ranging from all sorts of positive psychology to you name it, um, kinds of uh, sources of information and practices that one can apply for all of these different things. But when it comes to mindfulness, it is something, you know, that if you are really serious about learning those practices, 
you really try to bring to every part of your life. And, and, you, and you know, it's, it's a lot of work because there's so many things you do that you kind of do kind of unconsciously and repetitively and automatically. And, you're, and you know, and the big thing is that, you know, that kind of gets in the way of being mindful is just all, all your is mind wandering, think, constantly thinking about things that aren't present. And again, that's a really useful thing to do under some circumstances. But Often it can make us crazy. It can detract from being present in the moment, from really experiencing things richly. And I think the basic goal of a lot of the basic mindfulness, you know, approach is to just learn to be more present when you need to be and to experience things more richly. Um, and, and when you are making yourself and other people crazy, to really kind of be aware of that and not get so lost in it that you don't realize what you're doing, to be mindful about that as well. Right, exactly. So it seems like we have the ability as humans to essentially turn parts of our behavior into robot-like behavior so that we go into this autopilot mode where we just do what we need to do without having to think about it. And that frees us in some sense, for being able to think about other things. That's when we're on autopilot for driving. We can have a conversation with uh, the person next to us. But one of the dangers of that, I think, is that we turn over more and more of our lives to this autopilot, robotic-like mode. So is there any way that we can reclaim our awareness? Is there any way of reclaiming parts of our lives from this robotic mode? Or is it just an inevitable part of modern life? Again, I think a lot of what mindfulness is about is kind of becoming aware of these parts of our life where we are kind of just on automatic and we aren't aware of them um, and where we're either just distracting ourselves by thinking about something else or we're thinking about what we're doing with some story that makes us feel good about what we're doing without really more directly just seeing kind of what's really happening. And so I think you know, I think, I, I mean, I think a lot of these practices is just about clearing stuff out that we don't really need that kind of clutter up our experience and, and get in the way and distort what's happening. Um, and, you know, um, just speaking from personal experience and having a tremendous amount of clutter in my own mind, I mean, it's impressive how much of the stuff we generate and, you know, and where it all comes from. My God, I don't know. But it's, I mean, it's interesting just to see all the stuff that you know, kind of goes through one's mind and, you know, trying to figure out where it came from is perhaps a futile exercise and, and kind of what I think mindfulness is about and what might, what might differ from certain kinds of psychotherapies. You don't really try to figure out where this stuff came from. You just try to see it and to, and to be with it and not become engaged with it so it dissipates and so that it ultimately weakens and quiets down. And then you're either things are just quieter or you can choose perhaps to replace what you were thinking or doing with some other kind of thought, some more positive way of thinking about things, some other kind of action that you'd really rather do instead. Um, so I think kind of the crux of the idea is that you kind of tr it's, it's a process of reinventing, of c coming to understand who you are. And then kind of seeing it and then kind of slowly allowing it to change and be and becoming someone else you might want to be without kind of beating yourself up or becoming too kind of aggressive or brutal and, and kind of trying to manage yourself, which never works very well. And I think kind of the spirit of a lot of these practices is you just try to be with stuff you may not like rather than trying to, to get upset about it or to get rid of it with the idea that it will, it will dissipate if you disengage from it, and then you have opportunities to perhaps try something else. Great. So I'm Rob Goldstone, 
And my guest here is Larry Barcelo. He is professor of psychology at Emory University, and he has been engaged in for a long time now a fundamental research on understanding human cognition and its roles in perception, memory, language, and thought. And you have just identified yourself as a, a Buddhist psychologist. And I'm wondering whether there is any connection between your Buddhism and your recent theorizing about the, the instability of concepts. So you are very well known for arguing that our concepts do not have stable cores or definitions. I was hoping that you could describe a little bit about that because it seems like we have stable definitions, doesn't it? Isn't just a bachelor and unmarried man? Isn't this dog, this thing that barks and has four legs? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, it kind of two fundamental principles of Buddhism are impermanence and kind of uh, everything's multiply, deeply uh, intertwined and, and determined, and um, uh, and the, we have the illusion that there are essences and stabilities, but that's just an illusion that minds create, and that really everything's just constantly in flux and incredibly in, interdependent. You know, so that's the Buddhist perspective, and I think what's really interesting is that in modern cognitive science, it's just it's not just me. I mean, it's a ton of other people from kind of starting with neural nets and dynamic systems and interactive models of cognition, um, just, you know, believing that there aren't these rigid structures in the brain or these modules or things like kind of rigid cores to concepts like essences, and that instead what you have is this highly interdependent, relatively or, or at times very kind of fluid, um, in, uh, unstable system. And so, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, my work on, on the conceptual system, that those have been major themes that there are just tremendous effects of context on how you would think about what, you know, so how you think about it, an apple or a chair on a given occasion is, is ne probably never the same as you thought. Every time you think about a, any given thing, you think about it differently. And that's, that's reflecting kind of the, the constant evolution of the brain and of the cognitive system, of the impermanence of any given structure in the system, and the fact that everything is so interdependent that how I'm thinking about an apple or a chair right now is kind of dependent on all, all sorts of other things that we've been talking about that influence kind of how I think about that. And um, this is, uh, I mean, it, I think it's a really interesting parallel between Buddhism and modern cognitive science that I think both traditions kind of see things very similarly. And I think another really interesting thing about this is that scientists um, have come to believe this based on kind of what we often refer to as third person or quote unquote objective methods where we, you know, we, we aren't subjective. We aren't looking at our own experience. We're measuring things, you know, and we're from those measurements, we're figuring out you know, how the brain works. And using methods like that, we've come to these kinds of conclusions that the brain is a dynamical, highly interdependent, contextualized system. And Buddhists came to the same kinds of conclusions, not using methods like these at all, but more from just watching how their minds work. They're masters of introspection because they, the, the practices that they've developed for watching their minds are extremely sophisticated and, and kind of lead you to see what your mind is really doing. And I think it's from that, those kinds of practices that they came to realize that the mind is constantly in flux and highly interdependent and that there aren't 
really these essences are actually practices you can do where you take things where you think there are essences that are, that are permanent and you just look at them and you start to see that they really are in flux and impermanent and changing and interdependent. But I think it's really interesting that kind of these same conclusions were reached by these very different like first-person methods and third-person methods. Yeah. And, and I think that's one reason why these communities are so interested in what each other is doing and why they work together so well is because they have a very similar worldview. I mean, a, a lot of people don't realize it, but um, Buddhists in like the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries developed models of how the brain works, which are very much like our modern information processing models. If you look at, it's um, in, a, in a, doc, a, a set of teachings called the Abhidharma, which describe how the brain, how the cog, how the mind works. And it looks just like an information processing model. You have processing moments that have to do with like perception and attention and value and bringing memory into play and generating intentions, having affect. And so, you know, they, they ha- and, and they develop these models because they're very interested in trying to understand how the mind works so that they can then later change them through practices to kind of make life better. But um, but yeah, they have very similar ways of thinking. So it's not perhaps not surprising that we've kind of reached similar conclusions. That's really interesting because it's been argued that psychology got its start as an offshoot of philosophy. And one of the major methods which was used by some of the original psychologists such as Wilhelm Wundt relied on introspectionism, people's reports of their own introspective experiences, then during the heyday of behaviorism, introspective reports were considered very suspect, right? People thought, you shouldn't be using these first-person reports. We should only be using things that you can nail down with a quantifiable number, right? So we'll talk about the stimuli and the responses. Forget about what the the human or the rat thinks (laughs) that it is experiencing, right? And so there is a sense in what you are talking about that suggests to me that you're suggesting some sort of return to introspectionism, that there's value that modern-day cognitive scientists could get from looking deep upon their own experiences. So how do you see that working out? How do you see being able to take advantage of the rigorous scientific techniques that we get from the the behaviorists and from experimental psychology, but join that together with the insights that we're getting by looking in on ourselves? Yeah. And I would just like to, to begin answering it by just first pointing out how great the, the, the scientific methods we have for cognitive science are currently and how amazingly powerful are and, and what a huge revolution this was back in the 60s when people first started developing these methods. Essentially what people figured out how to do, as you know, well know, was to develop well-controlled laboratory paradigms where you present stimuli to people and you measure their behavior in some way. And then you infer cognitive processes that are likely to mediate between the stimuli that they're experiencing and the responses that they're making. And people back then and continue to develop extremely sophisticated mathematical and computational models that postulate certain kinds of internal mechanisms that um, are mediating between the stimuli and responses. And what was so controversial about behaviorism was that behaviorists didn't think you could do this rigorously. But as philosophers of science note, the essence of science is postulating 
things you can't see, latent variables from your observables. This is what physics have done for hundreds, has done for hundreds of years. It's what biology did. If you think what, about what Mendel did, he took kind of observable reproductive characteristic of parent-offspring phenotypes, and he inferred you know, genetic mechanisms that were responsible for the, these uh, reproductive histories. And he, nobody saw, uh, uh, you know, these genetic mechanisms for 100 years, and let he, uh, yet he postulated them and postulated them extremely accurately. And I think what we've done in cognitive psychology is essentially the same thing. From these behavioral methods, without being able to look into the brain, we postulated these mechanisms. And once we developed neuroimaging techniques starting in the 90s, the first thing that everybody did with scanners was to take these mechanisms the cognitive psychologists had inferred and then went looking for them in the brain. And lo and behold, just about every mechanism that cognitive psychologists found there's a neural basis for, and, there, and these mechanisms actually exist. So um, these behavioral methods that we have, uh, coupled now with neuroimaging, and then kind of all the ability to, to model th these things are incredibly powerful methods. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, I don't think we could, we, you know, it, it's an interesting question how much of that could have done, been done with just introspection. Um, you know, clearly, I think, you know, Buddhism through introspection kind of generated some very powerful insights similar to our insights. And, I, you know, and, I, and there's kind of a, a very kind of uh, – I mean, it, it's not such a new movement in a way because phenomenology has been around forever. But there's kind of a new – Frontiers of neuro, Human Neuroscience recently had a special issue on an area called – um, neurophenomenology, which it, which basically argues that the best way to understand how the brain works is to use both first-person and third-person um, data together, and that if you use kind of if you rigorously collect data and you know from what people are experiencing, that this will actually strengthen our ability to kind of draw conclusions from third-person data. Now, whether this is actually going to work or not is an interesting question, but I, there are a lot of people out there increasingly who are kind of returning to kind of introspection and phenomenology, but I think the difference is, is that they really want to do it in, in more rigorous ways than the, the, the historical ways that got us into trouble a long time ago, and I think the behaviors had some good points about the problems with those techniques. And then the other thing, besides using rigorous methods to kind of uh, measure subjective experience, coupling those with all these other ways we have of measuring behavior in the brain, um, you have to do all of that together. And I think, and again, that's a very much a cognitive science kind of spirit that you're using all these different traditions and perspectives and kinds of data and levels of explanation. And this is the, the most effective way to build a, a, a true, truly powerful theory of how the brain works. Great. Thank you very much. I see that we're just about out of time. Um, I've been joined today in the studio with Larry Barcelo. Thank you for being with us. Uh, this is Rob Goldstone for Profiles. Thanks for listening. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. <laughs>